welcome back everybody to Starting From The Pits. Here today we are doing an endurance special. As of recording this, we are a little bit early with this, but the day that this goes out, it will be the start of the World Endurance Championship. And I am joined by Dave Ellis. I mean, you are an expert in this area. So would you like to tell us how you know so much about endurance racing? Yeah, totally. So um, back in the the early 90s, as a kid, I kind of discovered Formula One. And I think Formula One is always everybody's kind of first introduction to motorsport, really, isn't it? It's the one that everybody sees. And then at some point in like the mid to late 90s, I remember uh, coming up with, um, what was it called at the time? It wasn't called WEC at the time, but it was the one on 24 hours. Oh, it was the FIA GT series, as it was at the time, okay. so 1997, 1998. And I remember watching the Le Mans 24 hour for the first time in 1988. And I was like, yeah, this is it. This is what I want to see. This is, this is more. I was like cars racing, like in proper deluges in the dark for 24 hours, cars breaking yeah. down. It, it just kind of really stuck with me. And I've kind of been watching it since then. Um, I first attended Le Mans in 2003. So I was lucky enough to see the Bentley win um, and be there before it got like super ultra professional. So you could do things like go down the Mulsanne straight, went right up against the Armco in the middle of the night and not get caught and things like that. Wow. Um, and attended quite a few years since then. I've missed the last few years, but uh, yeah, mm. looking forward to coming back. Um, kind of been hanging around watching uh, IMSA, WEC, Elms, kind of since they were. They were invented, really. It was, yeah, a long-time fan. Perfect. So you've got all of the accreditations around the ultra fan, almost. Um, so yeah. let's start off with the biggest question, I think. And I think it seems quite obvious, but for a lot of people who are joining just from Formula One, I mean, what is the main difference between World Endurance Championship and Formula One? So the first difference that's really obvious is the races are longer. In F1, <laughs> you've got this cap of, like, two hours the race has to happen within those two hours with, with the like little asterisks on that. WEC, the races tend to start at six hours and go up to eight to 10, and then there's the Le Mans 24 hours. Hmm. So that's that's the first big difference that everybody notices. The second one that people notice that when they watch the WEC races is these cars look very different. They're, like, they're closed wheel, so they're not open wheel like Formula One, but also even class to class varies quite a lot and your question you get straight away is how can those cars compete against each other mm. how can you have cars that look kind of like road cars and cars that kind of look like spaceships competing against each other this doesn't work and the answer is they don't compete with each other it's actually two to three sometimes four separate races in one and there's four different class winners a class winner for each so come the end of the race you actually end up with four podium ceremonies right. so that's the kind of big two in it Everything else kind of transfers over. There's a lot of drivers for F1 fans will know. There's people like Fernando Alonso have raced in WEC, Kobayashi, XF1 drivers, things like that. Most of those things transfer over, but it's the length and the uh, the classes that, that really take people by surprise and go, oh, this is this is quite a lot different. And funnily enough, those are the things that make the biggest difference as well. Mm, definitely. And I know, obviously, I've only recently sort of tapped into this world of endurance racing, but I have noticed that it is so much more exciting to watch because there is that difference in classes and speeds and things like that. There's so much more going on all at once. So for yeah. you, I mean, how would you class, like, put in rank, how would you rank these sort of categories in terms of competitiveness and also speed? That's an interesting one. So in terms of speed's an easy one. At the top right now, you've got the hypercar class, which is 
relatively new class, only the last couple of years that's been around, replacing what we used to call LMP1. That's definitely mm-hmm. the, the, the top class in terms of speed. Below that, we've got a class called LMP2, which right. kind of doesn't make sense with the class name now, now that LMP1's gone, but yeah. it's the second top class. The asterisk on LMP2 is it only exists at Lamar now. And it does exist in Elms, but it doesn't exist in WEC because there simply isn't a garage space for it to come right. along in the WEC. So that's your second top class. And then your third one is what they're calling LMGT3, which is GT3 cars, which you may have seen in uh, IMSA, Daytona. You'll see uh, the weekend there with Bathurst, those were the GT3 cars. So that's your kind of speeds. But in terms of competitiveness, like really, really tight, especially in LMP2 and GT3, because LMP2, although there's four types of car that can be entered into it, there's four chassis manufacturers, we'll kind of converge on one chassis manufacturer. We've just got Orica chassis now, which means that it's a completely level playing field in LMP2. It okay. might as well be a spec series, just like you see in Formula 2 and Formula 3. So right. LMP2 is tight. The GT3 class is very well balanced. It's a class that's been around for a long time now, and it is balance of performance. But because the cars have been around for so long, these teams have been around for so long, and so many different series use them, the balance of those cars is really kind of defined now. It's really, really well defined. That's pretty close. Hypercar is a wild card. We're not quite sure yet kind of where everything sits. Okay. It is a balanced class in theory. But it's mixed up because you've got some cars that come under the hypercar rules and you've got some cars that come under what we're calling LMDH rules, which is the Le Mans Daytona rules that you'll right. see in IMSA. So you've got to balance those two classes. And even then, even if you balance those two classes quite well, you've got a lot of very different cars in there that are producing their lap times in very different ways. The, the Toyota has got a completely different engine to the Porsche, completely different engine to the Peugeot. The Peugeot has got a completely different aerodynamic setup to everything else. It's kind of wild what they're doing over there. The Cadillacs with a big American V8. So I would say if, if you're being harsh, the hypercar class is the least balanced, but it's in the end possibly the least competitive but it's only because the other two are so competitive that hypercar kind of comes out like that but yeah it's very very tight for what it is but the variety in hypercar now is immense so what it makes up for in, in kind of um competitiveness it makes up for in variety without a doubt okay so is there like an obvious difference between the lmp and the hypercars because when you look at them visibly i i can't physically see it unless i'm searching for it or i look at the numbers on the cars <laughs> Yeah, so it is a little bit tricky to tell with those ones compared with the GT cars, which are yeah. kind of obvious and out there. You you do begin to see it a little bit eventually, especially because all of the LMP2s are all Oricas, so all of the same. So eventually, right. once you kind of look at it and go, oh, those headlights, I recognize those headlights, it's an Orica. It's almost yeah. certainly an Orica. Come Le Mans, you'll see, I think there's 60 LMP2 entries. So there'll be 16 identical Oricas driving around. You will spot them. As well as you've got the numbers, which you've obviously pointed out, but the, the number box colors on the car mean something yeah. as well. So the hypercars run red on the number box, the LMP2s run blue, and I think the GT3s are running orange now. So you okay. can see from that. And they do have leader lights on the cars as well. There's three lights on the side of the cars. Uh, if you're in first place, one of them lights up, second place, two of them light up, third place, three of them light up. Those are in class colors as well. So the hypercar right. ones are red, LMP2 ones are blue. They do look quite similar, but they're beginning to look very different, especially now with the hypercars coming out with uh, styling because you've got a lot of manufacturers like BMW, Lamborghini. They've got their own kind of BMW brand styling. Very, 
they yeah. do. The, the other one that you might like is the the Alpine. If you look at the Alpine rear lights, they are mm. the Alpine badge. It's really, really cool. The okay. detail that they put into that. So once you spot it, you go, ah, okay, you'll get it every single time. It's really is identifying that Orica chassis, which there will be yeah. a lot of it, will not Okay. So when I was watching IMSA when Daytona was on, I noticed they had little boxes on the thing with a different number into what their actual race number was. Mm -hmm. What was that number? I think it was a digital one. I think in my head I'd put it down to what position they were in, but I could be very wrong. Yeah, you're correct. So they don't okay. actually have those in WEC, or they didn't uh, the last the last year. They might do now, not sure. But in IMSA, those are the position number, usually okay. in class as well. So you can have three number ones, for example, as all three yeah. do in their class uh, but when they come into the pits i believe the imza ones actually turn into uh, a timer and it tells you how long the car has been on pit road That's and i think cool. it does it from pit lane entry to exit not necessarily time stationary right. so you'll see when it's stationary it's ticking up and that's just because it's it's literally been on pit road for that amount of time so i think that's what they're doing i think it's from pit, in, pit entry to pit exit rather than stationary i think yeah that's really interesting i feel like there's so many different rules and things we could talk about within each category and class to class side of thing but what would you say are like the biggest the main ones to look out for as a viewer um the biggest difference is it's probably especially when you come to Le Mans 24 hours things like safety car rules is going to get very complicated and it's actually quite difficult to explain at times until you see it happen. yeah so you've got um I'm going to get but the names of these mixed explaining up. the offside rule in football <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And not only that, it's like these rules are very similar to F1, but it uses different terms. And then there's another wild card thrown in there that F1 doesn't use. So you've got your general safety car, which yep. we all understand. But at Le Mans, there's three of them because they will separate this, this right. train into three separate trains. And I believe this year it's even changed where they're now going to, they did this last year as well, didn't go particularly well. They're going to bunch them up behind one safety car, but only after they've caught them behind all three. Right. It gets messy. The yeah. the one that we know from Formula One is, I think they call it a virtual safety car, but yep. uh, Le Mans calls it a full course yellow, which is right. everybody slow down to approximate safety car speed. The other thing that WEC has that F1 doesn't is um, a localized yellow in the form of a slow zone where they will neutralize just a section of track. Okay. Usually between two corners, if there's been an accident there, they will bring that under a, what is essentially a virtual safety car, but only for that 500 meters or so. Got you. That can be quite complicated to watch because you've got cars slowing down into it and then cars speeding up after it. And it's quite confusing to watch, but that's the biggest one. The positive of that is Le Mans is quite a long lap. If you go under yeah. safety car, you're there for quite a long time. And even when you want to bring the safety car in, a normal lap time at racing speed is three and a half minutes. A safety car lap can be six or seven minutes. So even when you decide safety car coming in, it could be almost 10 minutes before it's done. Yeah. If you have these localized yellows, you can deal with incidents without having to bring the entire circuit under oh, under yeah. a safety car. So it kind of keeps the race going and flowing a little bit. That's the big one. And the other ones being pit stops. We're used to these insane Formula One pit stops where you're like under two seconds now to change four tires. It's yeah ridiculous compared to like other motorsports. Le Mans different. You've got a very limited amount of people who are allowed to work on the car. I think it's something like who per who to change the tires might be three to change the tires I might be wrong with that one to refuel 
and one to clean the windscreen. The refueling takes quite a long time. That's a good 20, 30 seconds or so. And then the tires, because they're only done by two or three guys, they've got to go around the whole car at once. Yeah. So pit stops actually take quite a long time, which you go, okay, well, that's the same for everybody then. Pit stops are longer, pit stops are longer. But then strategy comes into play because if you choose not to change tires, your pit stop is significantly quicker if you only yeah. take fuel. So then you get the, should we take tires or should we only take fuel kind of stuff? So strategy comes comes into it really, yeah. really quickly. Yeah. So is it similar to Formula One where they have like softs, mediums, hards in for terms of tires? So yes, but also no. Okay. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna be nice and complicated. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't bother worrying about it because all okay. the tires are approximately the same speed to us as the viewer on the outside, but they do right. have softer tires that they will use during the night when it's colder and things like that, just to bring the oh, tire yeah. up to temperature. WEC also doesn't have tire blankets, which means bringing a tire up to temperature can actually take quite a while. You'll see on an outlap that the cars can actually be pretty slow on an outlap. I think mm -hmm. we've seen in, in IMSA, Daytona, that some of the prototypes on an outlap were slower than the GT cars, the slowest right. class, just because they couldn't get the tires up to temperature that quickly. So during the night, there is a softer set available to them. There might even be another softer set after that as well. But in general, the way we think about it with F1, where you've got these very set tires and they've got the color code so you know what's going yeah. on, it's not really like that. It's more uh, let's cope with the darkness and let's cope with the the, the temperature the of the environment. Got you. Okay, so it's not as detrimental, right? That yeah. makes some sense. So let's go into the weekend of a race itself. Talk mm -hmm. to me about qualifying and practicing. How does that all work? Because surely they can't qualify for like 24 hours. No, so it's the practice works exactly the same as the Formula One. You've got 60 and 90 minute sessions, that kind of thing, and all cars on track at the same time. All good. We know about that from Formula One. Qualifying, um, we've now got uh, it's split into the different classes. So you'll have, I think before it was actually split into two. So you got the GTs in one and you had the prototypes in the other. It might be split into three now with GTs, LMP2, and prototypes. Can't remember. But either way, they split the slowest cars out. So the slowest cars are doing qualifying on their own. Fastest cars are doing qualifying on their own. At Omar, there's then what we're calling Hyperpole, which is similar to what I think Formula E does this and IndyCar does this, where you've got a kind of shootout afterwards. Yeah. So you do your qualifying, just like you would normally do. Fastest car starts first, slowest car starts last. But then there's a kind of hypercar shootout where they go back and they do single laps and everybody gets one lap. Or right. two laps something like that and then you end up with the fastest on pole it's kind of a funny thing with qualifying in a 24-hour race and they're making a big deal out of it and it's arguably the least important thing starting pole in a 24-hour yeah. race it's really not that important <laughs> at Omar it's only important because you're on the front page of the newspaper the next day because the photo <laughs> yeah. of the local Omar newspaper which is quite a famous thing is the photo of the start so okay. you walk out the front row if you've got two Toyotas on the front row it's great publicity for them but for the race really not that important qualifying is almost like if you're a bit stuck for time skip qualifying to watch the race right. put it that way got you okay then so are all the qualifying is done at the same time so like you've got your gts and your are they all done at the same time but just categorized differently or do they all go out individually um they go out in the separate categories. So GT3s all at the same time, hypercars all at the Got same you. time. And then I think it's just the hyperpole where it's just the individual cars get a run. So it's the top, I think it's five, but it might be more now that the grid's a bit larger. Right. 
Okay. I'm slowly, the cogs are slowly turning. It's all sinking in. This is what I've needed to be able to get into. And I hope people listening are sort of like, okay, this is making more sense now. So say I'm wanting to go back and I'm wanting to educate myself on different races, different parts of, you know, the history of World Endurance Championship. What are some highlight races or seasons that would be good for me to go back and watch? So the good thing about WEC is they've been uploading a lot of the Le Mans races on full on YouTube. So it's not even just highlights. You can watch literally a full 24-hour video on YouTube. Something that I do um, every so often is like on a Monday, if there's been racing at the weekend, I've messed that load up YouTube and I'll put whatever races were on at the weekend on in the background just whilst Mm -hmm. I'm working. It's quite nice to do. So (laughs) if you can go on YouTube and find any of the Le Mans 24 hours, they're all worth watching because they've all got their own stories. But if you if you want something specific, if you look up something like 2013 to 2016 was a bit of a golden era where you had okay. um, what was LMP1s. We had these insane hybrids that were significantly faster than the hypercars. They were kind of insane looking back because they were not sustainable in terms of money or anything like that. You had Porsche, Audi and Toyota producing these. Th- these were hypercars before hypercar was around. Right. Type they had three different types of hybrid systems, three completely different engines. They made their lap times in very different ways. And it, the racing it produced was just incredible. And if you want to go further back, one of the races that everybody seems to consider one of the best ever was 1999 because of the amount of manufacturers involved with it and the amount of cars that should have won that race and didn't win that race was crazy. So you had Mercedes... Audi, BMW, Toyota, I think there was a Nissan in there as well. There was a lot of cars in there that if you looked at the entry list before the race, you would go, that car should win, that car should win, that car should win. And then even by midday on, uh, uh, even by like a few hours into the the race, you're like, this is not unfolding the way you'd expect. 1999 is definitely a good one to watch. Okay. I think that's that's the beauty of it with the whole endurance racing. You just never know what's going to happen. I remember... Obviously, Daytona was probably the first one. I actually, I know it's IMSA, but they all kind of jumble into the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, watching that, like going into it, it was very much like, oh, such such body's going to do really well this weekend. And then it just, you just had no idea how it was going to go up until the very last lap. So I think it's just, I'm in love with it. <laughs> there was one race, I think it was 2017, that everybody was very negative going into it because it looked like Toyota would dominate the race and it looked like it wasn't going to be a great race. The Audi had left, and Audi were kind of a mainstay, been here for a long time. So with Audi gone, and it looked like Toyota was going to dominate. They had three cars. Porsche just had two cars. And I think by midnight on day one, I might have the details of this wrong, but I think by midnight, two of the Toyotas were out, and there was one left or something like that. Mm-hmm. One of the Porsches was something like 20 laps down, something ridiculous like that because okay. it had problems. And then we ended up in a situation where I think the last Toyota might have died as well. So there was one Porsche miles ahead and then that broke as well. So like, it was one of those ones that everybody kept saying, oh, this race is over, this race is over. Yeah. But like something kept happening, which meant the race was never over. And okay. there's a, quite a famous one. I think it was 2016. Won't spoil that one, but watch the finish of 2016. It's okay. the last couple of laps is is ridiculous it's one of those like oh this race is over oh it's still not over so yeah okay. some, there's always a, a surprise roger that i'll put that in my homework <laughs> in terms of the cars you mentioned that they get refueled mm-hmm. there's hybrids involved in this as well which ones are the hybrids and how do they sort of 
do they just manage the electric as and when or do they get recharged do they get refueled and they use that the most what's the vibe with them so as of now the only class that is hybrid is the hypercars the p2s okay. and the gt3s are just good old-fashioned internal combustion engines burning Brilliant. dead dinosaurs and all that good stuff <laughs> so that's all fine um but if we go like back a little bit to LMP1, the, the class that's now been replaced by hypercar, those that was kind of where the hybrids came from. And that was ridiculous hybrids where the drivers had to manage the hybrid themselves when they deployed it and things like that. And there was a lot of drivers at that time kind of retired as hypercar, as, as in the LMP1 hybrids, got more popular because they were saying is that they just don't have the kind of cognitive ability to deal oh, yeah. with these hybrids at the same time. And it was the younger generations coming through. So if, we, if you look back to drivers like Tom Christensen, Alan McNish, who are kind of Le Mans legends, when these hybrids came along, they were kind of like, no, I'm out. This is Not a bit yet. too much. Now, the hybrids are a little bit easier to manage. The, the cars tend to manage themselves a little bit. That That's oversimplifying it, obviously. There is a bit of hybrid management, but yeah. it is kind of like a hybrid road car where it is regenerating when you brake. And All it's right. deploying again when you accelerate. They're not recharged in the pits. They're only refueled in the pits. And then all of the power in the hybrid comes from the deceleration. There right. is a couple of other kind of fancy things going on. I think I think uh, one of the cars, this might not be the case anymore, but it certainly was. One of the cars was using exhaust gases to charge a hybrid and things like that. Wow. So kind of crazy things going on like that, it was, especially with the LMP1s, the kind of hybrids they were coming up with were, proper crazy it's a bit simpler now but that's a good thing because it's more sustainable now the p1s were far far too expensive now right. it's more sustainable wow the technology and like engineering involved in that is out of this world like the, the cars look crazy enough themselves but to be able to redo that and everything involved in that that's unbelievable we'll move on to the driver side of things now mm -hmm. who is currently the lewis of world endurance championship the max of like the up-and-coming superstar and mm. also like the the goat as we said as we all say oh no that that that's a question everybody's going to argue over a lot <laughs> because the the lineups especially that we've got now are kind of ridiculous when you look at some of the the driver lineups there's proper mm. legends in there like there's a couple of xf1 drivers like it's hard to argue against sebastian Buemi in the toyota for example he's yeah properly good at endurance racing like really really good and a lot of people look at this and go well these are these are people that didn't do that well in f1 it's like it's not really like that it's a slightly different skill set and endurance yeah. is totally different so you got people like sebastian Buemi over there proper superstars and then you've got like the Penske Motors, the Penske Porsche. I think it's the number six. Just look at my entry list here. That's an insane driver lineup of proper superstars. Kevin Estra is out of this world in a GT car. Uh, and Andre Lotterer has won Le Mans multiple times in an Audi and a Porsche. Lawrence Vantour is another GT3 legend in a Porsche. Right. These are proper Porsche factory drivers who get paid right. by Porsche. Not just that. And if you've watched um, Bathurst at the weekend there, you'll have seen Matt Campbell winning the Porsche as well. He's in a prototype as well. So you've got these kind of insane drivers up there. But then further down, there's there's a few interesting names that are getting really popular in endurance motorsport that are still kind of household names or, or relatively, especially for uh, Formula One fans, because Robert Kubica is in a Ferrari mm -hmm. this year. Ferrari hypercar at that as well. That's a name to to really look out for he's his career's kind of on the up again um the, the grid is just stacked to be honest yeah it's 
absolutely ridiculous. There are so many good drivers in there. Uh, Sebastian uh, Bordet's in there. IndyCar fans will know him. He's won many championships over in IndyCar. Mike Conway, another XF1 test driver, things like that. Uh, Roman Grosjean, we all know him yep. from Formula One. He's in a Lamborghini. Uh, the grid's massive. You could pick any of the hypercars and just go, these are absolute legends, all of them. They're all brilliant. Right. So who's your one to watch then this season? Who's your ones to watch? It's going to be hard to overthrow the Toyotas. The, okay. There's a lot of complaints about the balance of performance, people saying the Toyota is a bit too strong. But the reality is Toyota have been here for a long time now. And people will say, oh, well, Porsche and Ferrari have been here for a long time. It's like, yeah, but not in hypercar. Not in the top right. class, not with these cars, not with these teams. And arguably, the Porsche entry is actually a Penske entry. It's kind of a half factory effort, yeah. half not. It's going to be really hard to overthrow the Toyotas. But if you if you were looking for somebody to do that, the obvious answer is the Ferraris. One of them won Le Mans last year. That car yeah. is very, very strong. And the number six Porsche, it's hard to get away from Kevin Estra, Andre Waterer, and Lawrence Vantour because these three separately are just demons in a car you put all three of them together in a car and you're just like that's a that's a big entry that one if Penske can kind of get it together we know they did in IMSA they've struggled a little bit in WEC but if they get it together in WEC that car is going to win races and is probably a title contender but the favorite still has to be Toyota right got you so when these drivers are getting into world endurance championship is it sort of like you know how Formula One drivers start off, They their goal is Formula One. They're completely narrow-minded. That's how Formula One, that's where we're going to. Are there any drivers that have sort of said, like, this is my goal, I want to end in World Endurance Championship? Um, that's an interesting one. There's there's a lot of drivers, um, again, people like Estra Lotter or Vanthor, who made the change early in their career. I, Andre Lotter is a funny one because he did go to Formula One at one point as well. He did one race, I think right. it was, in a Lotus. Um, but there was a lot of drivers actually switch over from single-seaters to sports car racing yeah. around the Formula 3, Formula 2 type stage. It, it tends to be because when you're getting up to that, there's not actually that many Formula 2 cars in the world when you think about it. You've got Formula mm. 2, that's it, there's no more. And yeah, you go down to Formula 3, but there's, again, if we go beyond Formula 3, there's not actually that many cars available. But if you go into sports car racing, there's a lot of seats available suddenly. And they're not that expensive compared to right. getting into Formula One. Even if you look at um, look at LMP2, for example, we've got the, the entire Elms grid is uh, LMP2. Mm-hmm. You've got 20 cars there and it's two to three drivers per car. There's 40 to 60 odd drivers yeah. in that series alone, just in that class. So already we're at double the size of Formula One or Formula Two. So when you get to the kind of... Um, Formula 3, Formula 2, and then you're going, it's getting very expensive. It becomes a legitimate option that you can go, yeah. oh, actually, I can go and do that instead. So I, I don't know of any driver specifically who's went, actually, Le Mans is my goal. But it, mm. the switch does happen early on for a lot of people. And then there's a lot of drivers get to Formula 1, people like Sebastian Buemi, do very well, and then find it's like, there's no more progress there. I've, I've hit my ceiling there. Let's yeah. go and try something else. And Buemi, we've seen him be incredibly good at Formula E. He's incredibly good at WEC. And you, you tend to find these, the F1 drivers are very adaptable when they come to other series as well. So when they decide to go to sports car racing, they can adapt very well. Right. Interesting. Yeah, because you, you look down the grid and obviously, like you said, there's so many names that you recognise from different series. It's like, it obviously is a very 
interchangeable skill between the single seaters and the sports cars and also i think the sports cars are kind of cooler because you can kind of see these cars on the road almost not quite to that spec but you almost you can appreciate the value in it as well because it's like god they're actually thrashing these god knows how many car a thousand pound cars around um so yeah the they it really does amaze me um, I kind of agree with that in that I, I obviously I started out watching Formula One, but I yeah. now my preferred form of motorsport is WEC. I got this joke about motor racing's not worth doing if it's less than six hours, you know. Let's <laughs> sit down and do it properly. But you're right, is like you do see them thrashing it. One of the downsides of Formula One at the moment, and I'm not saying like Formula One's bad, I love Formula One. Yeah. We'll we'll watch every weekend. But one of the downsides is they have to manage the car so much, manage the fuel load so much, and it's very much a, a it's very paced now. WEC, you would think being a twenty four hour race, it's just the same, but mm-hmm. it's often not. These cars are being ragged sometimes, you know, they're <laughs> properly on the edge with them, and like you say, they they look quite similar to some road cars at times, especially mm-hmm. we've got things like the Ford Mustang in there and the BMW M4. <laughs> There's a couple of them down the road for me. It's great. Yeah. It's like I can see the racing version on TV. And the other great thing is, like, Le Mans is almost like an all-star race. It's You've got all the cars from WEC. Some of them don't have a third driver, so Le Mans, they require the third driver. Right. And then you bring in, like, all these cars over from IMSA. There's a bunch of IndyCar drivers in there. You've got uh, ex-Formula 1 drivers in there. It's it's great. It's a proper, like, all-star race. You drivers like, like a... Fernando Alonso turning up and doing it for a couple of years when he was having a bad time in Formula <laughs> 1, you know? Yeah, it's almost like a festival, isn't it? You've got fine acts. Yeah, and being there is quite like that as well. The campsites are kind of wild. It is a bit like a festival, especially if you find like the Dutch campsites. They're they're insane. And the Danes <laughs> as well. The Danes are next level insane. I don't, don't know if it's the same since Tom Christensen retired, but they used to properly throw a party. Like being there is a festival as well. Yeah, I'm hoping to get there at some point over the space of the 24 hours, but... Yeah, I'm I'm excited to get the the vibe for it and feel the energy from it. And yeah. as as we know, Le Mans is so iconic. It is the the one to watch kind of thing. You know, Monaco was on at the same time last year. And it was like, which one are we going to be watching this year? Um, and I opted for Le Mans last year. But how did it become so iconic? Where did this whole where did it begin? So I, I think it was 1908. I think it was. Um, and somebody's going to message you and correct me on that. By the way, I can't remember the exact. <laughs> and I get things wrong my, all the time. Right, one of my friends is going to correct me in a group chat <laughs> at some point. Um, and the idea was just how far could you drive in twenty four hours? And it wasn't right. all on area. The circuit is nothing like it was now, and it's kind of just grown from that. It's something that's grown slowly over a century, really. Nineteen twenty three. That was it. Sorry, uh, nineteen twenty three. It's it's grown slowly over this time. And it's just kind of like manufacturers buy into it. You'll 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 have seen many adverts from Porsche and things like that, um, advertising how many Le Mans wins they've got, Audi as well. Like the more the manufacturers buy into it, the bigger it gets. And even when Le Mans has down years, it's it's never struggling for entries because the right. amount of like um, amateur drivers and amateur teams that just want to go race there. So even when this this manufacturer boom that we've got at the moment dies off, which it will, it's just a cycle that Le Mans goes through. You get peaks and troughs. Right. It will still be one of the most popular races in the world for drivers and teams. And it's just kind of, this is what happens when something sticks around for this long. If you consider that Formula One started in 1950, Oman was 30 years before that. It's been a long time here. It's it's been building to this for a century now. That's absolutely insane. 
And obviously, as we've mentioned, there's IMSA, um, ELMS, all that kind of thing. Where do these fit into that? Because when I was first learning about ELMS, when I had Ryan on the podcast, mm-hmm. I didn't realize that that was sort of like a qualifier for Le Mans. So yeah. how does it all work? Because then surely there's so many different cars on top of the entry lists. Yeah. So what you've got is essentially two sides of the, the Atlantic is what we've got. You've got IMSA over on the American side and you've got what we call the ACO, which is a French governing body, similar to like the FIA for Formula One. They're over on the European side. The good news at the moment is they're speaking to each other and they're happy and they're friends. And it's lovely because it's not always been like that. And we've had lots of ridiculousness with American cars not being legal for Le Mans, Le Mans cars not being legal in America, all sorts of mess. The great news is we're all friends right now to the point where the first chicane at Le Mans is now called the Daytona chicane and the, okay. the bus stop at Daytona is now called the Le Mans chicane. So we're all wow. good friends now. So this means they kind of share the classes quite a lot. So you watched them up and that had uh, had... They called it LMDH, but you can think of it as hypercar. You had LMP2 and you had, they called it GT Daytona. It's exactly yep. the same cars as the GT3s that we're going to see at Le Mans right. W's. Exactly the same cars. Over in Europe, there's more cars and more teams, and it kind of has to be split out a little bit more. So you've got WAC, which is worldwide, not just European, but it's run out of France. So we'll call yep. it European for the sake of discussion. Your WEC, and then below that, you've got ELMS, the European mm-hmm. Le Mans series. European Le Mans series is LMP2, GT3, and LMP3s, which are smaller versions of the LMP2s. Right. The idea being that if you win in ELMS, uh, in either of the classes, you get an invitation to Le Mans. And I think it works in IMSA as well. If you win the IMSA championship, you get an invitation to come to Le Mans. So what you end up with is the WEC goes to Le Mans and then they invite cars from the other series that have won right. in various classes. There's also the Asian Le Mans series, which yep. is just an Asian version of the European Le Mans series. Calendar's a little bit smaller. That really suffered during COVID. Right. Suffered a lot more than the other ones. It is growing a little bit more now. But it's the same idea again of LMP2s, LMP3s and the GT3s and the winners from each class get an invitation. The end result being that you end up with a hypercar class that you can't really invite many cars to. You can bring a couple over from Inza, but there's none in Elms or anything like that to bring yeah. in. But an entire LMP2 class gets transplanted in for Le Mans. You bring over most of the Elms cars, a couple of the Elms cars, for, a couple of the P2s from Imza, and sometimes even an LMP3 team rents a P2 car to go right. racing in that. And it's the same in GT3. You bring over the GT3s, you can bring in some from Elms, you can bring in some from IMSA. So it's like you take WEC, you bring in the best of the other ones to kind of fill the grid. Because I think the WEC grid is, I think it's 36 cars now, but the Le Mans grid is 65 cars, I think. So you wow. need another almost 30 cars to fill it. So you bring in quite a lot. It's absolute chaos. You don't, you, it's no wonder that it's such good racing because there is just so many cars on it. I feel like we've nicely sort of covered the majority of the basics, but obviously I can't have you on here without talking about your app, the racing mm-hmm. line app. So for those who don't know, talk to me through what is the racing line app? So the racing line is an app to give you the start times of any motorsport that you could possibly think of in your uh, time zone. And it gives you notifications for the series you want and it's all customizable. It came about uh, during 2020 um, when COVID hit. 
I was kind of left going, well, what do I do now? Like sitting at home, I just changed career into software development as well. And I'm like, what, what, what do I do now? And I was like, well, I always wanted to build an iOS app. This is like the perfect time to do it. If I don't do it now, when am I ever going to do it? Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to learn iOS development. So I'm going to do. I want to build iPhone apps. So built the first version of the racing line. It's very simple. Just gave you a list of races. Um, and then last year I was like, I want to build this out into a proper thing now, make it a tool that lots of motorsport fans could use so that if you were a fan of any series around the world, it doesn't matter whether it's cars, bikes, whether it's endurance racing, whether it's rally, whether it's Formula One, IndyCar, doesn't matter. It's in the app. So now you can get, it's over 100 series that are in there now. You can get, um, or it will be by the time uh, this, this episode is published anyway. Uh, there's a hundred series in there. You get the start times in your time zone. You get all the practice qualifying and race times. You get links to where the events are streamed. Unfortunately, some of them are geo-blocked or paid streams, but yeah. you know, it's what it is. Uh, you can also customize the app so you can choose your series. Nobody really watches a hundred series. It's just not possible. So you can go through and select the ones you want. And you can even turn off practice and qualifying if you just want races. You can set notifications. If you want a notification 10 minutes before, you can get that. If you want a notification five hours before, you can get that totally up to you. And I've tried to make it nice and privacy focused as well. There's a lot of apps out there that are just wanting to take your data and sell it to people. I don't do that. I don't even have the ability to do that in the app. I can't store your data. I don't have a database. If you ask me to see your data, I don't have it. I'm sorry. Um, and I've even tried to make it nice and cheap now as well. So I changed some things around to bring my operating costs of it down. So I've brought the cost down to 99 pence a month or £9 a year, which is, is a pretty good deal in my opinion, because what £9 a year is what, two Starbucks coffees in a year, something <laughs> like that. So pretty good deal in my opinion. Um, and I've got quite a few other things that I'm working on for it as well. I'm trying to kind of build it out into a proper thing and trying to do the social stuff with it as well which has been a bit of an adventure i'm a developer not a marketing person yeah. so this has been quite an adventure doing the marketing side of things definitely i mean i honestly i rave about this app all the time any of my friends at work and i'm like do you have this app you need this app it's so good um it's literally just everything that any motorsport person has been needing and the notifications helped me a lot this weekend world rally championship was on and i was like oh mm -hmm. i can go and watch that i went on the tv and it was on and it was perfect it was perfectly in time and i was like this is exactly what i've been looking for so from me and everybody who has the app thank you for creating the app <laughs> that, that's what it's there for is like i originally did it because i remember back in 2020 is like when motorsport was motorsport was obviously a mess during covid nobody knew what was on was when i used to go through all the different series each week and go what's on this week like yeah. when, when when is the british touring cars on when when is the nurburgring on like when is it and i ended up having this ridiculous apple note in the, on my phone like writing things down and like oh this is on at this time this is on at this time and it was getting ridiculous so like no oh, there's got to be a better solution to this so that's what i built and the thing that i'm kind of working on now is there's You'll, you'll have seen in the app there's AI recommendations but yeah. I'm trying to make them better I'm trying to be like you like watching Formula One there's no Formula One this week but there's IndyCar on you might like IndyCar and this is how you watch it I'm trying to yeah, get like that. I'm trying to give people more things to watch like because we all know Formula One we all love Formula One but there's so much motorsport out there that's brilliant not, not always better not always worse just different and brilliant I'm yeah. trying to get the app to be like if you like this, you're going to like this. And if you like this, you're going to like this. And eventually we kind of all watch more motorsport together is the idea. Yeah. And that's who wouldn't want more motorsport in their life. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite feature of the app that you use the most, love the most? 
my original favorite feature was the fact that it gave you notifications at a set time. Yeah. So that I've not used the Formula One app in a while, but I'm going to use them as an example because their app for a long time was pretty bad. It used to give you a notification when the race was starting. So yeah. if you were in the kitchen and it would go, the race is starting now. You're like, well, I've now missed the start because yeah. I'm making a cup of coffee. By the time I've got the TV on, we're on lap two. And yeah. as much as like the start's not the be all and end all, it's an important bit. I want to see that. One of the best so, bits. Yeah, exactly. So that was the thing I set out. Just like, I'm, I'm fixing that. In fact, I'm really fixing it. And then I thought, well, I'll do it 15 minutes before. And then I thought, well, there's no reason it has to be 15 minutes before. It could be any time before. In fact, mm. it can be up to the user what time. So that was my original favorite feature. My favorite feature at the moment is the fact that you can see all the events. It's not just it's not just a list of sessions anymore. You can go and dig down and go, for example, Daytona 500, which has been postponed at the moment. But if you, you go into that, you get the, the qualifying, the practice and the race time. So you yeah. can just see that event isolated. The feature that I'm working on at the moment, which I'm, I'm struggling to get working, but I really want to do this one, is essentially a graph of your weekend, like a Gantt chart type thing, where it'll be like the Formula One's on this time, and the, right. the, the Le Mans is on this time, and IMSA is on this time. So in theory, you could see what races are when and where they overlap and things like right, that. Yeah. So working on that at the moment might not be soon that it's out, but that, that will become my favourite when I get it working. Love that. And of all the race series that are on your app, which is one that you think people should go and watch more of? Definitely give WEC a chance for the obvious reasons that we've talked about. Yeah. But the European Le Mans series as well is another one of those. When you watch it, you're like, oh, wow, there's a lot going on here. Just because it's not manufacturers, it's names that we're not used to when we're Formula One fans. Formula One fans, we're used to big names like Toyota and McLaren and things like that. We're used to that. When you look at the European Le Mans series, you're like, who are Vector Sport? What do they do? What, Duquesne, who are they? But when you really get into it, you're like, oh, this is really good, actually. Really, really good. So yeah. European Le Mans series is one of them. And if you go over to America, obviously you've got IMSA, but IndyCar is really good as well. IndyCar is similar to Formula One, but you'll find it quite different as well. And the circuits they race on, they're, they're not quite up to what you'd call the standard of Formula One in that they look a bit rough. They'll do more street circuits and things like that. But that really adds to it. And IndyCar can be incredibly entertaining. Okay, perfect. Well, I feel like that was a great way to round up this episode. We've got some suggestions. We've got some homework of things to watch. So it's mm -hmm. been an absolute pleasure to have you on and to get to know more about the world of endurance racing i feel like we're all gonna have a wonderful time this weekend watching the first race of mm -hmm. the world endurance championship and it's been great to have you here thank you so much it's been lovely having you here thank you very much mm -hmm.